We're learning Daf Kaftet in Masechet Rosh Hashanah. We are on Daf Kaftet Amud Bet, the last five words of the Amud. Amar le Rabbi Zerah the Rabbi Zerah said to his attendant, Ikavan utkali, please have in mind, and build a shofar for me. Alma kasavar mashiach, by Ikavana, which implies that he holds that the person who is making the sound, in other words, the person blowing the shofar, has to have intention to fulfill the mitzvah of the person who's listening. And as we discussed on the previous Amud, there's a whole a back and forth regarding kavana of the person being motzi and the person being yotzei, the person who is fulfilling the mitzvah on behalf of others and the person who is receiving that benefit. It's whole discussion there. So we see that Rabbi Zerah holds that the person who is blowing the shofar certainly has to have in mind to fulfill the mitzvah of those who are listening. So we have an objection to that uh, from the Tosefta that we've seen numerous times mentioned in the Gemara already, which is if a person is passing by the synagogue or his house happens to be next to it. And he happens to hear the sound of the shofar or the sound of the megillah through the window or whatever. If the person passing by or sitting in his house hears this and he has in mind to fulfill the mitzvah, he fulfills it. And if not, then he doesn't fulfill it. And there was a discussion on the previous Samud what kind of kafana exactly the listener has to have. But the main point is, What good does it do that the listener has kafana? Since he doesn't have, in other words, the person who's actually blowing the shofar or reading the megillah doesn't have kafana for him, for the recipient, for the listener. So what good does it do that the listener has kavana? If you see that Rabbi Zerah holds that the, the person who's making the sound has to have kavana, what, what evidence do I have that the person making the sound has kavana? So the answer is, the Gemara says, Achab here we're talking about Ishlech Tzibur, we're talking about a Chazan who is, who is blowing the Shofar or reading the Megillah. He has in mind for everybody. So it's no problem. Rabbi Zerah knew that whoever is making the sound has to have in mind for you. It just happens to be that the Chazan of the synagogue has in mind for everybody. If the person who's listening has in mind, but the person who's making the sound doesn't. And this could be talking either about the sound of the Megillah or the Shofar. Or or the person making the sound has in mind, but the person who's listening doesn't. It says that they both have to have in mind, the person listening and the person making the sound. But they seem like it's a similar type of kavana. Just like the person who is uh, who is making the who is listening, it says just like a person shomea shomea that he has in mind for himself to fulfill the mitzvah. So too, it says that the mashmia has to be mashmia latzmo. The person who is making the sound has to have in mind for that person as well. In other words, he has to uh, he would have to have in mind. For the particular individual, in other words, he has to have in mind for the particular individual, right? So, and in in the case of the chazan, that wouldn't work, right? It says that he didn't fulfill the mitzvah if he didn't have that intention. Or as we have in the Haggaot, according to the side of the Gemara, it should say that he fulfilled the mitzvah. In other words, according to this way of reading the Gemara, the corrected way of reading the Gemara is that the person who is making the sound had kavana le'atzmo, meaning he didn't have kavana for the other person at all. But what it means to say is that just like the Shomea is thinking of himself, he wants to fulfill the mitzvah, the Mashmiya is also just thinking about himself. He's not thinking about the other person, right? That's the, that's the way that... Uh, uh, that our the Gemara is floating uh, is flowing and it's saying that he fulfills the mitzvah regardless of the fact that he had in mind only for himself and not for the other person. 
Right, so that's the, the the point is that just like the Shomea is only out for himself, the Mashmiya is also only out for himself, and yet it says that he fulfills the mitzvah. So that shows you that the person who's Mashmiya, the person blowing the shofar or reading the Megillah, doesn't have to have in mind for the other people. He can have in mind just for himself, and other people listening in can fulfill the mitzvah. Unlike what Rabbi Zerah says, and un, and unlike what the uh, previous Brayta seemed to say, Tanehi, it's really a machloket Tanim. The Tanim we learned in the Brayta Shomea, Shomea Atzmo, Mashmiya Mashmiya, Darko. That the Tanakhama said that the person listening listens for himself and the person who is making the sound does it according to his normal way. Meaning to say that he does it for himself. And you listen in, you fulfill the mitzvah. Rabbi Yossi said that's only true if it's the chazan. But if it's an individual, then the person who's doing it has to have in mind. In other words, if it's a shlech tzibor, by definition his role is that he's mashmiya for everyone. He's creating the sound for everyone. So therefore, he doesn't have to have a specific intention to fulfill uh, the mitzvot of the people around him because it's understood from his role that he has that in mind. He's serving as a chazan, so he doesn't have to have in mind each person that he's uh, fulfilling their mitzvah. But when it's a yachid, when it's an individual arrangement, so there the, the person who's making the sound has to have in mind to fulfill the mitzvah for the people who are listening in to the, uh, to the Megillah or to the shofar. This is a very famous mishnah. It's describing Milchemet Amalek that when the uh, when the when Moshe Rabbeinu uh, was standing on the mountain and he was holding up his hands, whenever he would hold up his hands, <coughs> then the uh, the Jewish people would uh, be winning, and whenever he would lower his hands, the Jewish people would be losing. Do the hands of Moshe cause people to win war or lose war? As long as the Jewish people were looking above, and they were subordinating their hearts to their fathers in heaven, to their, to their father in heaven. Then they would succeed. <coughs> and if not, they would fall. In other words, the hands of Moshe were just symbolic. In the case where the people were being bitten by snakes and Moshe Rabbeinu made the Nechash HaNechoshet. He made the, the copper snake that when they would look at it, they would be healed. It says when they would look at it, they would become healed. Does this copper snake give life or kill somebody? When the Jewish people look upward and they subordinate themselves and to serve Hashem, then they would be healed. If not, they would, they would disintegrate. In other words, they'd be destroyed. The idea is that um, in the case of the hands of Moshe and in the case of the snake, the, they were just symbolic reminders for the people to focus on Hashem. It wasn't that the reminder itself did anything particularly uh, to affect the solution. Now, what is this Mishnah doing here? Seemingly, the idea is Kavanah. That since the previous Mishnah was discussing the issue of Kavanah, here we're also talking about Kavanah. That it's not enough sim- simply to look at the mechanics of a mitzvah, but to have Kavanah and understand what's behind it. And here, simply looking at the hands of Moshe wasn't the point, or the Moshe's hands being lifted wasn't the point. It was the kavanah behind it, that the people, when they looked at it, it inspired them to serve Hashem. That was really what made the difference. That, then the, Gemara, the Mishnah says, A deaf mute, somebody who is lacking in uh, cognitive ability, a child, they cannot fulfill the mitzvah on behalf of the community, because since they don't have the obligation themselves, biblically, they cannot share that obligation with others and fulfill the mitzvah for them. However, uh, and it says, this is the rule, anybody who is not obligated in something, cannot fulfill the mitzvah for others, because the, what enables us to fulfill a mitzvah for someone else is the fact that we share the obligation, and our obligation is not just for ourselves, but it's also 
includes everyone else. We're responsible for everybody's fulfillment of the mitzvah. But when we don't even have the obligation to begin with, so then we also cannot be a shaliach for that person, a messenger to fulfill the mitzvah. The Gemara says, Tanura banan. Everybody's obligated in blowing the shofar. Kohanim, Levim, Israeli. Kohanim, Levites, and Israelites. Gerim, converts. Va'avadim, Shukharim, and freed slaves. Vetumtum. And also somebody whose gender is uncertain because their genitalia are covered from birth. Va'androginos, or somebody who has both male and female characteristics. Also somebody who's half a slave and half free, meaning that he had two owners. One of them freed him and one didn't, so he's half and half. The tumtum cannot fulfill the mitzvah for anyone, not even for his own, not even for another tumtum. Because it could be that one tumtum is a female and one is a male. And it could be that the tumtum that's doing the blowing of the shofar is, uh, is a female and the one listening is a male and that wouldn't work because the female is not obligated in tekiyat shofar. And so the, a tumtum cannot fulfill the mitzvah for another tumtum because we never know which one could be male, which one is female. Androgynos, motiet mino, androgynos who has both male and female characteristics could fulfill the mitzvah for another androgynos. Avalot cheno mino, but not somebody else. In other words, because the idea is that all androgynosim are the same. Either they are male uh, or female or some combination of both or a different character or a different, uh, uh, or a different uh, uh, you know, category altogether. It doesn't even matter. Um, so uh, whether they're a different category or they're treated as uh, one or the other, it wouldn't matter uh, because they're all going to be the same. Unlike a tumtum where the tumtum is either male or female, we just don't know. In the case of androgynos, he's either a different category or he's male or he's female. So, the, so therefore, we, uh, um, uh, one androgynos can fulfill the mitzvah for another one. Again, one who's half slave and half free cannot fulfill the mitzvah even for another person who is half slave and half free because the half slave part of him cannot fulfill the mitzvah for the half-free part of the other person. The, since the whole person would be involved in blowing the shofar, it's half made by a slave and half made by free, so it would not work for another half-slave, half-free to fulfill that mitzvah. Now, Amar Mor, the master said, Everyone's obligated in blowing the shofar. That's obvious. If they're not obligated, then who could be obligated? Right? Kohanim, it's the chidush is for the Kohanim. Because since it says in the Pasuk Yom Yelachem, it should be a day of shofar blasting for you. That means somebody who only has one day that's Yom Tu'ah, one day of blasting, uh, that is obligated in Rosh Hashanah. Since the Kohanim have the experience of the blowing all year round, because it's the because they blow the Chatzotrot, they blow the trumpets accompanying the Korbanot all year round. You might have thought that Rosh Hashanah, they don't need to hear the Shofar. It's coming to tell you that they do. So Midami, is that really a comparison? The, what are the Kohanim here? They hear the Chatzotzrot. They hear the blowing of the trumpets, not the Shofar. Shofar is unique to them on Rosh Hashanah also. So why shouldn't they have to be obligated? Ela The reason why it had to mention that Kohanim were obligated is because you might have thought Since we said that the Yom Kippurim of the year of the Yovel and Rosh Hashanah are compared. They are the same with regard to the blowing of the shofar and the blessings in the Musaf. So since the, you might have thought that since the Yom Kippur of the Yovel and Rosh Hashanah are compared to each other, only someone who is fully included in the mitzvah Yovel will be fully included in Rosh Hashanah and Kohanim who are not fully included in the rules of um, and Kohanim and Levim actually are not fully 
included in the mitzvah of Yovel because the Kohanim and Leviim have certain dispensations uh, with regard to uh, with regard to the Yovel that others do not have that they receive their property back more readily and they're allowed to sell or consecrate property more readily. Rashi explains and he brings different versions of the Gemara in front of us as does uh, as do the Tosfot bring different versions of the Gemara in front of us with an additional piece that Rashi cuts out. Tosfot puts back in. It's a complicated uh, it's a complicated part, but the uh, because the text is uh, is somewhat uh, in doubt, but the way that Rashi has Rashi says that what it should say is makdishin not mochrin, but makdishin they can consecrate forever and they can redeem forever, which means to say that a normal person is not allowed to consecrate something to the Bet HaMikdash, let's say a property um, under two years before the Yovel, because anyway, he's going to get it back. Now, the rule is if you consecrate something to the uh, Bet HaMikdash for its use, and then um, the Yovel comes, you get it back unless the Bet HaMikdash sold it in the meantime. If they sold it in the meantime, then it doesn't come back to you. However, when it comes to Kohanim, if Kohanim, so first of all, Kohanim can consecrate their fields even within two years of the Yovel, it's okay. And, um, and uh, an additional point is that uh, Kohanim are allowed to uh, redeem uh, even in cases where a Yisrael could not redeem. And of course, we also know that when it comes to the Batei Chomad, the selling of, of uh, houses in walled cities where there are restrictions that after two years, uh, that after a year rather, you're not allowed to redeem a, a house in a walled city that you've sold. Uh, that doesn't apply to Levi'im, they can do it forever and so on. There are, certain, there are rules of Geula and Hakdasha and selling that regarding land that the Kohanim and Levi'im have that are different than Yisraelim have uh, that make the Yovel not apply to them equally. And uh, this is what, uh, exactly which one of these halachot that is that the Gemara was talking about is the subject of the different textual variants that Rashi quotes in the Tosafot quote. But the main point is that since Kohanim and Levi'im have a different set of rules regarding Yovel, you might think they wouldn't be included in Rosh Hashanah, Tzkiat Shofar, since there's an, a link between Yovel and Rosh Hashanah. Therefore, Kamash that they are obligated. Somebody was half a slave and half free. He cannot fulfill the mitzvah for somebody else who is in the same situation because his half-slaveness cannot fulfill the mitzvah for the half-freeness of the other guy. Um, however, Rav Huna said he can fulfill the mitzvah for himself. He can blow the shofar for himself. Wait a second. It doesn't really make sense. Because what's the reason why he can't fulfill the mitzvah for another person who's half-slave? Like he is. Why not? Because his, his slave side cannot fulfill the mitzvah for the free side of the other person. Because the slave side is not obligated. Only the free side is. And he's blowing the shofar with both sides of himself. So to speak. So, uh, so for himself too, it should be. His side, in other words, even for himself, he shouldn't be able to fill the mitzv- fulfill the mitzvah since his shofar blowing that he's doing for himself is generated by both his slaveness and his freeness. And so therefore he shouldn't be able to fulfill his own mitzvah. And the Gemara says, in fact, in fact, Rav Nachman came along and said he cannot fulfill the mitzvah even for himself. We learned so in the Brayta. The Brayta says that somebody who's half slave and half free cannot fulfill the mitzvah even for himself. Any bacha, even though you already fulfilled the mitzvah, you can. Fulfill it for somebody else. You can say it again for somebody else, except 
except for bread and wine. In other words, you cannot say blessings on food for other people and they will fulfill the mitzvah um, by listening to you unless you're also eating or drinking. That if you didn't fulfill the mitzvah yet and the other person doesn't know the blessing, you can say the blessing for them and they fulfill the mitzvah together with you because you're going to eat. Um, but if you're not going to eat and you don't have the obligation, then you cannot say the blessing for the other person and not partake. The only, but for mitzvot, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to say the bracha for them even though you're not doing the mitzvah because every Jew is considered to share in a mitzvah that, he all, that also applies to him or her. Now, Bayu Rava Rava asked a question. That's what we have in front of us in the Gemara. The, on the side, it says that it should actually say Rachava, not Rava, with a chet in there. In either, in either case, we turn to Amud Bet. What about the blessing? Let's say a person's going to eat matzah and he doesn't know the bachot, and you want to help him with the blessing of alachilat matzah. That you could definitely do. What about the blessing of hamotzi that comes before that? Because first you say hamotzi lechem in aretz, and then you say asher kedishanu b'mitzvodav tzivanu alachilat matzah. Can you say that? Can you say the hamotzi there or birkatayin shel kedusha yom? You could definitely say for the other person asher kedishanu b'mitzvodav ratzavanu v'shabat kocho ba'avavaton hinichilanu etc. Up to ba'uchat Hashem bekadesh shabbat because that's a mitzvah. But what about the birkatayin of boy priyagefin? Since we said that you're not allowed to say bachot that are for foods unless you're partaking, what about when that bachot for a food is connected to a mitzvah? Do you say, since it's obligatory because you have to say the blessing of the wine together with the kiddush, you can also say that part. Or you may be able to say, no, that bacha is not part of the obligation. It's not part of the core obligation. And since you're not eating or drinking, you shouldn't be saying that bacha. Right, so do you say that since the kiddush and the ham, and the and the eating of the matzah are obligatory, so that includes also the bracha of the hamotzi and the kiddush and the and the yain or not? So it says, Tashima uh, kamen lesed dama ravashi ki havenan be rav papi. When Ravashi said that when we were in the home of Rav papi, hava mekadesh lan, he would make kiddush for us. Vaki hava ate arisei midavra, and then when his worker would come. Or his uh, sharecropper would come. He would then make Kiddush for them as well. So when his workers or tenants would come in from the field, even though he made Kiddush, he would say the Kiddush for them. So that shows you that he would say both the blessing of the Kiddush of Boi Priya Gefen as well as the blessing of the Kiddush Mekadesh Shabbat. And so that means that when you have a, a bracha that is a mitzvah, plus also a bracha of the eating or drinking that goes with it, it's considered part of the mitzvah. A person, a man should not cut the bread, meaning say the, the hamotzi and cut the bread for his guests unless he's also eating. However, if he has children, members of his family, that he has to teach them the bachot, then he's allowed to do it. When it comes to halel or megillah, even though he already fulfilled the mitzvah, he can read it for others to fulfill the mitzvah for them. So they listen along or, or answer uh, depending on the situation and fulfill the mitzvah that way. That is the conclusion of the third parak. We open with the fourth parak. If Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, they would blow the shofar in the Beit HaMikdash, but not in Bamdina, not in Yerushalayim, and not Bigvulin, Rashi says. Nowhere else outside the Beit HaMikdash, according to how Rashi inter- interpreted uh, After the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai made an institution that they would blow the shofar even on Shabbat, any place that had a Beit Din. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, 
According to uh, Rabbi Lazar, that was only in Yavne, not in any Betin. Although they said to him, no, Echad Yavne Echad Kol Mokom, Sheish Bo Betin. They answered and the Chachamim said, no, any place that had a Betin, he allowed the belonging of the Shofar, not just in Yavne. Ve'od zot ha'ita Yerushalayim t'ra'al Yavne. And this was another way in which Yerushalayim had, was greater than Yavne. Now, according to Rashi, this is referring to while the Bet HaMikdash was still uh, it was still uh, in you know intact when it was, was still standing. That shekol ir shiroa v'shomat ukova v'chola lavo tokin uviyavne lo ayu tokin el betin bilvad. That any place that was close by and could see Yerushalayim and uh, and was able to uh, uh, you know would be able to come. Meaning that it was within a reasonable distance and could hear and see from from there, they could also build the shofar together with uh, with the uh, with the people in Yerushalayim. Now, the problem with the way that Rashi interprets this is, of course, that he initially said that in the Beit Hamikdash they would blow the shofar, but not Bamdina, not in Yerushalayim, and not outside. And then he says that while the Beit Hamikdash was standing, anybody who could see Yerushalayim would be able to blow the shofar, etc. That's very difficult because that's obviously contradictory. Um, the uh, the Tosafot says no. What it means is that uh, during the times of the Beit Hamikdash, it could only be uh, done in the Beit Hamikdash, not outside. And then when it says any place that could hear or see Yerushalayim, that's talking about after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, that then any place who could hear or see Yerushalayim, since Yerushalayim had a Bedin, could also, uh, uh, could also uh, blow the shofar. Now the thing is, and then Tosafot gets it, it themselves into a difficulty, which is why is it that there's a different halacha that during the times of the, uh, when it comes to Lulav, during the times of the Beit HaMikdash, everybody shook the Lulav uh, when, when the first day of Sukkot fell on Shabbat. Um, whereas it's more strict that on, in the times of the Beit HaMikdash, only in the Beit HaMikdash did they build the Shofar, not everywhere. And then after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, nobody shook the Lulav on Shabbat anymore. But after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, there was lots more uh, options for blowing the Shofar on Shabbat. So he discusses that at length in the first Tosafot of this uh, this parak. Now the Gemara says, where do we get this idea? That when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, we don't build the Shofar. One pasuk about Rosh Hashanah says that it is a day of rest, zichron a remembrance of the Torah, of the blast of the shofar. A day of Torah should be for you. A day of shofar blowing it should be for you. One is talking about when Yom Tov falls on Shabbat, and therefore it's only a remembrance of the Torah. It's not an actual Torah. And one is talking about where it falls on a weekday, that it's actual Torah. And in fact, that in the Ushal, that's actually accepted as the drashan. They interpret in the in the Ushalmi, if I remember correctly, that it's actually a delaita that there's no uh, shofar on Rosh Hashanah when it falls on Shabbat. In any case, if that's true, that it's a delaita that there's no shofar on Rosh Hashanah when it falls on Shabbat, and it's based on a pasuk. So then, why in the Beit Hamikdash did they do it? The od halav and moreover, it's not a melacha. So what's the problem? You don't have to exclude. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know, the blowing of the shofar it's it's not a it's not a melacha to begin with right now the, according to the Bach the word veod uh, shouldn't be here um, it should just say the, the language should just be veod melachahi is it a melacha in other words it's a it's a uh, it's a uh, rhetorical question 
which usually is referring to, uh, that is a reference to the prohibition of Melacha on Yom Tov. That excludes the blowing of a shofar or removing bread from the oven. Even though it's a skilled action, the removing of bread that they used to stick to the walls of the oven was a skilled action, required a lot of skill. And tkiat shofar also requires skill, but it's not a melacha. So you wouldn't have to exclude it. Why would the Torah tell you not to blow the shofar on Yom, on, on yom Tov? It's definitely not a melacha. Really, you're allowed to blow the shofar according to the Torah. And really, this is based upon the gzera de Rabbah. This is, it's really a rabbinic prohibition. Just like Rabbah said, that everyone is obligated in blowing the shofar, but not everybody is capable of doing it on their own. Therefore, what will happen? That a person, a person might take the shofar and carry it in the public domain on Shabbat to take it somewhere where somebody can blow the shofar for him. He's going to end up violating Shabbat in his attempt to, uh, in his attempt to fulfill the mitzvah of shofar, which of course would be bad, and therefore we don't allow any blowing of shofar on Shabbat. Same reason for lulav and megillah. Lulav, you might need someone to help you, uh, show you how to shake it properly so you'll carry it on Shabbat. And the same concern could happen with megillah. So therefore, these mitzvot are not done when the, when the holiday falls on Shabbat. According to the Bavli, it's all based on Gzerat de Rabbah, Rabbah's decree forbidding it because of the potential for carrying. Now, the one time it happened that everybody was coming together to be able to blow the shofar near the betin. Let's blow the shofar. They said, no, let's first figure out if this is the right thing to do. If we should really be blowing the shofar. Uh, you know, even in a case of a, near a Din, maybe it's a concern, even in the Din area, that people will carry the shofar, so we shouldn't, shouldn't do it. So, He said, let's first blow the shofar, then we'll discuss it. So after they blew the shofar, so then the Bnei B'tegra came to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai and said, let's discuss it now. He said, nope, the, the horn has already been heard in Yavne, meaning we've already blown the shofar, we cannot now go back and uh, and retract after we've already done this public action of uh, of uh, blowing the shofar publicly. So therefore, um, basically, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, in a way, snuck his uh, halacha in there. He said, let's discuss it afterwards. They did it, and then he said, oh, we already did it. There's a precedent now. We can't question it. Any place that has a betin should blow the shofar. Now, the Yom says, Amar Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Yavne Bilvad, according to Rabbi Lazar, this was only done in Yavne, not every bet bet uh, din. Amarlo, Amulo, they said to him, "Echad Yavne, Echad Kol Mokom Sheish Bo Beitin." Amulo, Haynu Tanakama. It sounds like the Chachamim are answering, but it's the same thing as the Tanakama. Tanakama and Chachamim. Is there, are there two opinions here or one opinion? Right? Ika, what's the difference? Ika Benayu Beitin Adakrai. There's a difference between them with regard to a bedin, which is a temporary makeshift bedin. Rashi says, "Letanakama Takinan." In other words, there are three opinions. The opinion of a Tanakhama is any place that has a betin, even if it's convened just temporarily, allows you to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah that falls on Shabbat. According to Rabbi Elazar, it's only in Yavne, and therefore there might be no analog to it besides Yavne. And then according to the Chachamim, 
uh, only a place that has a bet din kavua. If you just convene the bet din temporarily, that doesn't count. It has to be a fixed bet din, an official bet din, in order to permit the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah that fell on Shabbat.